Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a really interesting guest today, Glenn Kirshner, attorney and former prosecutor. And he was scheduled to do this podcast right as the Proud Boys verdict broke. So the great thing is we get to talk to one of the top experts right as we had breaking news. And the flip side to that is that we didn't get him very long because he had to jump off and go to cable news. So we're going to get to that in a second. But first, thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening. And we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and we'll read a few next episode. And if you like the podcast, please follow us, subscribe to us, do all that good stuff. This way you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So let's get to our two big things. But first, you have repeatedly we, criticized the, the vice president for not specifically calling out Antifa and other left wing extremist right. groups. But are you willing tonight to condemn white supremacists and militia groups and to say that they need to stand down and not add to the violence in a number of these cities, as we saw in Kenosha? And as we've seen in Portland, sure, are you I'm prepared to, to do specifically that, do it? Well, I, go would ahead. Say, I would say almost everything I see is from the left wing, not from the right so wing. So what are you? What are you? you look, what are you saying? I'm, I'm willing to do anything. I want to see well, peace. Then do it, sir. Say I, it. Do it. Say it. You want to call them? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and white supremacists. White supremacists and white supremacists. Stand back and stand by. He's angry that he's being asked to condemn white supremacy. That's it's a, his base. Yeah. And you know that, like, Chris Wallace was so tempted to be like, sir, just can you please answer the fucking question? It's, why is this so difficult to condemn white supremacy? Chris Wallace is not his father. He's not his father, but he's, he's close. He did a good job there, though. And so yesterday, four members of the Proud Boys, including the top dog, Enrique Terrio, were convicted of the r very rare and serious crime against government, which is seditious conspiracy. And that then begs the question, what's going to happen with Trump? Without Donald Trump, there was no January 6th. There was no insurrection. None of it. And zero. Their, and their defense attorney made the case that Trump was the cause. Yeah. Zero would have happened if it wasn't for Donald Trump. He was the mastermind. So it's kind of hard to fathom that all of these guys in the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, 14 people in total who are convicted now of seditious conspiracy, hard to fathom that Donald Trump wouldn't also be indicted and tried and convicted of the same crime against government. Because if not, then the assumption is these guys just all plotted this by themselves. It's a slow, meticulously prepared case that is building to this crescendo. Emphasis on slow. Slow. But not with Jack Smith, though. That motherfucker is fast. <laughs> That's He's not Merrick. And so when you think about that and you consider everything we know, we've heard, we've seen Donald Trump say over and over and over again, all the attempts to overturn the election, all the calls in Georgia and this and that and it's just really hard to fathom that he won't be convicted of the same crime. Yeah, if you had said this before Jack Smith was involved, I would have doubted those words completely. But I, I do think Jack Smith is going after everything. And now they have an insider at Mar-a-Lago who's basically telling them where 
Trump was hiding the documents. Yeah. So seditious conspiracy, it's a very rare Civil War era accusation. The last time the Justice Department tried a seditious conspiracy case was in 2010 in an alleged Michigan plot by members of the Hutari militia to incite an uprising against the government. That ended in acquittal, but the last successful seditious conspiracy trial was in 1995 when Egyptian cleric Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman and nine followers were convicted in a plot to blow up the United Nations, an FBI building, and two tunnels, and a bridge linking New York and New Jersey. Now let's look at the Justice Department. We talked about them being slow. And people talk about Merrick Garland and the frustration that we all have that it's, you know, two and a half years since this event happened. And, you know, but in the 27 months since J6, there, there have been over a thousand arrests in nearly all 50 states for crimes related to the breach of the U.S. Capitol that day. And that includes over 320 people who were charged with assaulting or impeding law enforcement. Uh, I mean, just think about what we're talking about. We're talking about potentially sending a former United States president to prison. There's no room for error at all. There's no room for error, but it does take time. I think that the issue about the speed is most concerning because it puts all of this in the middle of him running for president and getting closer to 2024. So I don't think the speed at which they prosecuted the people that they've got 600 convictions on has been a problem. But if we're looking at anything Jack Smith does into 2024 is going to be looked upon by his base as a witch hunt. Partisan, for sure. That's the thing. The Justice Department and Merrick Garland, they're in, they're in a no-win situation with perhaps 30% of the American population. No matter what happens, they're not going to be happy. They don't care about evidence. It doesn't matter, which means the Justice Department and the FBI should be operating in a non-political manner. Just follow the evidence, try the case based on the evidence, and let a jury decide. I think part of the criticism of Garland, it seems like Garland has just played politics up until he brought on Jack Smith. Yeah, I mean, it seems like he was basically just scared. You mentioned before our Lago and the Documents case. Uh, it's been a, another shitty week for Donald Trump. We had the E. Jean Carroll case. We have Jack Smith on multiple fronts. Um, the E. Jean Carroll case, Donald Trump has decided that the best defense is no defense. He's not going to show up. He's not going to testify. He's not even going to call any witnesses. It's kind of worked for him in the past, you know, say. so why not? But part of his defense is that she's not my type. Same thing with the lawyer. She's not his type either. Yeah, but she's not my type. <laughs> e. Jean Carroll, you're not my type. First of all, if one of your defenses of rape is that I didn't rape her because she wasn't my type. You're a fucking rapist, okay? you got the mind of a rapist. You just are choosy. But, but but this video from the deposition where they showed him a photo, it was a yeah. photo with E. Jean Carroll, and they asked him, who is it? And this is all on videotape. And he's like, that's that's my ex-wife, Marla Maples. And they're like, no, it's E. Jean Carroll. <laughs> oh, I just didn't hear that. So, so when bad. you confuse your ex-wife with the woman who is accusing you of rape purely based on physical attributes... I'd say she's your type, right? Okay, so <laughs> this is going to be rare coming for me, but he has a point. And the point is, is that during that time period, up until like today, 
when powerful men are accused of something, of sexual misconduct, they have successfully been able to wiggle their way out. And so it worked for him for years and years and years. So why wouldn't it work for him now? I mean, just that's his mindset. And he's kind of right that it has worked. Yeah, I mean, I'm old school. To me, a defense for rape is, oh, my God, I unequivocally respect women and I'm not a criminal and I would never touch a woman. Touch, forget rape. I wouldn't even touch a woman without consent. But that's not his brand. <laughs> come on. I mean, if his brand is I, I would rape her if she was my type. I mean, uh, come on. All right. But to your point, Jen. Yes. Um, do you, do we remember the Access Hollywood tape? Yes. You know, you can grab him by the pussy because you can. I thought that was the end of him. <laughs> because really you're famous and they let you. Well, also in his deposition, he was asked by the, the attorney for E. Jean Carroll, if he wanted to walk that back, if that's what he really feels. And what do you think Mr. Trump said to the lawyer? He said, well, historically, that's true with stars. And the attorney incredulously asked, true with stars that they can grab women by the pussy? And Trump responded, well, that's what, if you look over the last million years... I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. That's so classically Trump. <laughs> but he's right. He's right. Uh, Don, but okay, he's, but coming what, out from my mouth. He's saying Donald everything. Trump he's arguing both right. sides. Because, like, look at Harvey Weinstein. Look at, look at the Me Too movement. And he's right. I, I know, but it's uh, incriminating like crazy. No, you can't grab a woman. Anywhere, whether you're famous or not, period, end of story. The fact that these words came out of his mouth during the deposition under cross-examination by the plaintiff's attorney is astounding. It's an incredible window into this man's psyche. He's a terrible poker player. Uh, he always I, has been. I'd love to play poker. He'd be like, I'm raising you $1 million. And I'd be like, well, he's a pathological liar, which oh. means he's bluffing. I'll see your million and I'll raise you 100 gazillion dollars. But he's always said the quiet part out loud. And what he said was, well, I agree <laughs> so with Jen, true. it's true. Until the Me Too movement, if you're a rich and powerful man, you could do whatever you wanted to. I know, people. but that's not the quiet part out loud. That's the stupid and incriminating part out the loud. The quiet part is often stupid and incriminating. New York. He's in on the hot seat in New York. Man, DA Alvin Bragg is seeking to restrain Trump's access to the evidence it turns over to his attorneys because he's got a big mouth and he has tiny little crazy fingers on Truth Social and he talks shit and he attacks the DA. And it's like, why give this guy the evidence when he's only going to, you know, break the rules with it? Of course, Trump's attorney said this violates his First Amendment rights. And they argued, this is my favorite part, they argue that uh, Trump does not have a history of attacking enforcement officials who have investigated <laughs> him. It's like, just say whatever you want, no matter how ridiculously untrue it is. Uh, again, I have to and say, I think everyone it, is just going to believe you. Worked for him his entire life. You're right. You're right. I say this all the time. I should just smash my head into a wall because I think too logically. Um, a judge threw out his 2021 lawsuit accusing the New York Times reporters of an insidious plot to obtain his tax records. No, you're just ev evading taxes. That's why we got it. 
because we're the media. Chris Christie. Chris Christie. The man who supposedly is going to be the only one strong enough, tough enough to take on Donald Trump on a debate, which mm-hmm. to me is absolute fantasy. He's because not, He's not going to run. The minute Christie scores a great point, Trump's going to just look at him and go, hey, fatso, shut up. And that'll be the end of Chris Christie. Unfortunately, that's, well, or fortunately, that's but, true. But he said that uh, Donald Trump has no answers on how to fix America's problems and continues to lie about the 2020 election because he's a, quote, child. <laughs> Takes one to no one. Whose fingers are hurt. Exactly. Yeah. Let's what? close down the yeah. George uh, Washington Bridge. Yeah, you, really. You insult me? Okay. Everybody gets stuck in traffic for four years. Trump's taking some heat over his J6 prison choir recording. I mean, God, that is so sociopathic. He's celebrating these people like they're fucking heroes. His base loves it. In the polls that matter to him, he's trouncing everybody. Let's spend a couple of minutes talking about our favorite people, the Thomases. And of course, I'm not talking about Marlo and Danny. I'm talking about Ginny and Clarence, who never met a grift they didn't like. (laughs) It's so true. Now his wife, Ginny, it turns out that uh, about a dozen years ago... Leonard Leo. Leonard Leo. Uh, and our favorite Kellyanne Conway. Leonard Leo, who is a longtime Federalist Society leader. Federalist Society is the one who basically says to tr- presidents like Trump, here's 15 people we sh- we think should be on the Supreme Court if you get the opportunity to appoint one. Um, and he's also a big friend of the Thomases. Through Kellyanne Conway arranged for Ginny to be paid tens of thousands of dollars from a nonprofit he's involved with, which is called Judicial Education Project. This was supposedly for consulting work. But the interesting thing is he said, don't put her name on the invoice. We don't want anyone to know. Why? Well, when asked why, his answer was, (laughs) well, because it's dangerous if people are... He just poo-pooed the whole thing. And so that same year, though, here's what's interesting. This was all in 2012 in January. You know what happened at the end of 2012? Mm-hmm. Leonard Leo's Judicial Education Project submitted an amicus brief in the Shelby County versus Holder case to the Supreme Court. This was a case that was challenging a landmark civil rights law aimed at protecting minority voters. So in the same year where she was paid up to about $100,000, the case then goes to the Supreme Court. And what happens? The court struck down this formula in the Voting Rights Act, which had determined which states had to obtain federal clearance before changing their voting rules. Yes. Very important rule, very important part of the Voting Rights Act. Clarence Thomas was part of the five to four majority. So let's just let's just summarize that for a second. His wife in a year or the year and a half prior was paid a hundred thousand dollars by the guy who is involved with a organization that then went before the Supreme Court to strike down voting rights. And he got his wish from Clarence Thomas. He was the deciding vote. And people wonder why people distrust government. I mean, what's happening with the Supreme Court is just unconscionable, but it is it is so disgustingly corrupt that it's impossible to imagine that somehow some kind of code of ethics movement isn't going to come. I just don't see any way that there's going to be a code of ethics that isn't one that the Supreme Court actually wants itself. That's a great point. In theory, you're (laughs) right. But if there's a drip, drip, drip every day of this kind of thing, there's going to be pressure on 
the court to do that? They may adopt one themselves that's stronger than they have now, which appears to be nothing. I think it's going to happen because I think we're not seeing the end of the scandals. The last thing I want to mention is that we also learned this week that Clarence Thomas's nephew, that he basically raised as his own kid, yep. was sent to a very expensive private school for several years, probably to the tune of $150,000, which was also paid by Harlan Crow, mm. who has taken him all over the world, taken the Thomases all over the world. I mean, this man literally owns a Supreme Court. He's paid he tuition for his kids. He bought his mother's <laughs> house. He takes them on trip. I mean, d- give me a definition of having a Supreme Court justice in your pocket that's that's greater than that evidence. Roy, was, Roy Wood Jr. did have the best joke on this at the correspondence dinner, I think you heard. What was it? That Clarence Thomas is an NFT. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was pretty funny. All right, let's get to our winners and losers. Go. My winner, a blow against far-right extremists. Four Proud Boys convicted of sedition in key January 6th case. My loser, the U.S. South. North Carolina Republicans used their new supermajority status to push through the 12-week abortion restriction, which stands to limit abortion access throughout the South if enacted. My winner this week is Ben Ferencz. The last Nuremberg trial prosecutor died at 103. He convicted 22 Einsatzgruppen members of murdering over a million people in cold blood, and he opened the trial by saying, let the court, by its judgment, affirm the legal right of all human beings to live in peace and dignity regardless of their race or creed. My loser this week is CNN for planning to give Trump a live platform in New Hampshire to advance his Stop the Steal conspiracy. They will help their ratings and add nothing to the public discourse, and journalists are supposed to filter truth from fiction. Trump will steamroll whatever pathetic pushback CNN attempts. My winner. The DOJ and FBI, who achieved the department's 11th, 12th, 13th, and 14th J6 conviction for seditious conspiracy. My loser, the Supreme Court, which continues to sink deeper and deeper into its ethics swamp. All right, let's get to this week's rant, which is going to be a little longer than normal, but it's an important one, and it's going to counter what Maddie just said. CNN. It has obviously been on the hot seat since it's announced Monday it will be holding a televised primetime town hall with Donald Trump next Wednesday night. In expressing the criticism shared by many, Norman Ornstein, the eminent political scholar, said the invitation to Trump, quote, legitimizes a man under indictment, currently on trial, with more indictments to come, who incited a violent insurrection against the country and its constitution and democracy, end quote. And that note, and that to Trump, it's, quote, a godsend, a network he hates bowing down to him and giving him attention and airtime. Now, defending the network, its political director, David Chalian, said, quote, CNN goes all in on covering the presidential campaign, and a key piece of that is town halls with the candidates, and that the town hall, quote, helps inform voters about their choices. Chalian added that Trump is the Republican frontrunner for the nomination, stating, quote, for us, our job, despite his unique status, is the same. We have to hold him to account for his words and his actions. I don't think our mission as journalists is anything less than to cover the news, and he's the news. End quote. And I 1,000% agree. I believe it's critical to our democracy. There are those who'd rather close their eyes, ears, and pretend that deplorables don't exist. Because if we pretend they don't exist, maybe they'll go away, right? Well, guess what? They don't go away. 
they get even stronger because fewer people are publicly resisting and rebuking them and their rhetoric. I'm the opposite of that. I believe in keeping my friends close and my enemies closer. Let me give you a little personal example. Two days ago, I was on the New York City subway with my 19-year-old daughter. A psychotic-looking guy briskly walked straight towards me, angrily muttering to himself and giving me a chilling look. We read all the time about people like this. They whip out a knife and they just start randomly stabbing people. As he passed me, I turned to follow him with my eyes because I didn't want to be another poor schlep who gets stabbed in the back at 14th Street. If someone's coming at me with a knife from behind, I want to see it so I have a chance of defending myself. My daughter sternly looked at me and warned, you're not supposed to make eye contact. She was afraid. Her thinking was, if dad just turns away and pretends he doesn't exist, he'll be okay. But any reader of the tabloids knows that's not how life works. I've never turned away. Over 40 years ago, when I was getting my journalism degree, I learned that the world is full of unscrupulous, dishonest, scandalous, and even dangerous people. And that the job of journalism and journalists is to expose them, to challenge them, to rebuke them. CNN is doing its job. As viewers, as voters, as Americans, it's up to us to do ours. All right, let's bring out Glenn Kirshner. Glenn is a former assistant U.S. attorney for Washington, D.C., and is an NBC News and MSNBC legal analyst. He's tried hundreds of cases in his 30 years as a prosecutor, including more than 50 murder trials, multiple lengthy RICO trials, and precedent-setting cases. He teaches criminal law at George Washington University and has a YouTube channel and podcast called Justice Matters with Glenn Kirshner. Glenn, welcome into the back room. Hey, Andy, great to be with you. So while we were waiting to go on, there's actually been some breaking news in the Proud Boys trial. So why don't you give us an update because you've been very involved in that on, on TV right now. Yeah, all five defendants have been convicted of multiple offenses. Five of them have been convicted of crimes that carry up to 30 years in prison. Four of the five were convicted of the lead count, which is seditious conspiracy, the granddaddy of them all trying to violently overthrow our democracy. That carries a 20-year maximum penalty. So four of the five at the moment are facing up to 50 years in prison. All five are facing a minimum of 30 years in prison. And the jury is still deliberating on some of the, uh, the counts. They delivered what's called partial verdicts literally just a few minutes ago. And is Enrique Terrio one of the four people on seditious conspiracy? They banged out Enrique Enrique for the lead count of seditious conspiracy. Fair is fair. He was the chairman of the Proud Boys. This is, I think, a huge, huge win for democracy and the American people. How do you think it impacts the rest of what's coming down the pike in the investigations into Trump? It, it can only help, I think, energize, perhaps even accelerate the um, investigation of Trump for the insurrection. You know, I was in and out of the courtroom for the Proud Boys trial, watched some of the closing arguments and the defense attorneys expressly argued, Donald Trump is the one who's responsible for the insurrection. You know, he told the Proud Boys to stand back, stand by. He set the date, come to DC on January 6th, will be wild. He deployed them on January 6th by inciting them at his speech on the ellipse. And they, one of the defense attorneys argued something that I tried to write down word for word. He said, I suspect the first government exhibit introduced 
at the trial of the United States versus Donald Trump is um, him sort of uh, telling these folks, go to the Capitol, fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore. Your vote was stolen. Your election was rigged. Now go down there and stop the certification. But beautifully, from this old prosecutor's perspective, Trump didn't use the word certification. He used the word steal. And that provides powerful evidence of his criminal intent because he knew, and the prosecutors can prove he knew it wasn't stolen. It, and it kind of makes it hard to fathom that all of these guys convicted of seditious conspiracy, but the head conspirer goes scot-free. Is it possible that we could end up seeing that? Anything is possible. I think it's extraordinarily unlikely. You know, you're taught in the army. I started as an army prosecutor back in the 80s that you must obey lawful orders, but you must disobey unlawful orders. Donald Trump's orders to the Proud Boys and others to attack the Capitol that day was an unlawful order. It's what we call a mitigator. It may reduce the ultimate sentence some of these people are exposed to because they can plausibly say, my president told me my vote was stolen. My country was at risk of being lost. And I, if I didn't go stop the certification, I wouldn't have a country anymore. They weren't all critical thinkers at the Capitol that day. And, you know, so... I don't I can't envision an America in which the Department of Justice gives Donald Trump a pass for trying to overthrow our democracy. So let's play this out. Let's say a year from now, it starts with a, an indictment from the Department of Justice and Jack Smith's investigation. And it goes to trial. Let's say he's convicted the same way these guys were convicted today. What does that mean? Does that mean a former president would potentially be facing 20 years in prison? Yes, statutorily it does. Seditious conspiracy is a 20-year offense. I think the biggest question in my mind is not if Donald Trump will be prosecuted federally. He will. It's not if Donald Trump will be convicted. He will. I hope that the federal judiciary has the appetite to dole out the kind of punishment commensurate with that crime and imprison him. Because if you don't, if you sentence him to home detention, home confinement, that's essentially sentencing somebody to binge watch Netflix and order DoorDash. That's no kind of punishment, and it will not deter tomorrow's wannabe dictator or autocrat. So he needs to be put in a jail cell. I happen to believe he probably will be, given the egregious nature of his crimes. We may be of the same generation, and growing up, we watched movies like The Manchurian Candidate, and we couldn't fathom that ever happening in real life. And we're not even talking about Russia, which is another incriminating event in Trump's life, which he could and should perhaps go to prison for. But it is shocking to think of where we are in this country, that something like this could have been allowed to happen, did happen, and what the consequence of that might be on our culture and society. If it does go to that place, as it should, but does all of this make America stronger or in some way is this weakening America domestically and abroad? I, I think the end is as of yet unwritten as to whether we will come out of this stronger or weaker. The only way we come out of it stronger is if, you know, somebody prods the rule of law into wakefulness and we begin holding the ruling class criminals accountable. That's not just Donald Trump. 
It's half of his darn cabinet. It's Mark Meadows, his chief of staff. It's the insurrectionists that are presently serving in Congress. It is a runaway corrupt Supreme Court. You know, Clarence Thomas, I'm sorry, has violated the federal law when it comes to public financial disclosure forms. It looks like three or four times over. And the Department of Justice, my beloved home for almost quarter of a century, continues to sit back and do very little overtly. When I say overtly, we have not seen a single arrest or guilty plea or cooperation agreement with any of the ruling class criminals, the command structure of the hierarchy. We're just going after the boots of the insurrection, the people who, in a very real sense, were following Donald Trump's unlawful orders. That is a deep injustice every minute of every day that they are being imprisoned and Donald Trump is playing golf. What do you think that is? It is the timidity of the Department of Justice. I know because I experienced it and fought against it for decades from the inside. A Democratic Department of Justice? My... Because under Bill yes. Barr, he didn't seem to have any problem holding Trump's water. And, Barr and... corrupted and weaponized the Department mm -hmm. of Justice. And some of my friends left DOJ and left the federal government in protest, like the trial team that was on the Roger Stone case. You know, Donald Trump and Bill Barr together used the Department of Justice to punish Donald Trump's perceived enemies mm -hmm. and reward his friends. That's something that the Department of Justice has yet to clean up by holding folks accountable for what was done under the Barr Trump tenure. And this is why I say the rule of law is not asserting itself in the way we need it to. It's not meeting the urgency of the moment to protect our democracy. The only fix for what ails us is for the rule of law to be applied to all of the ruling class criminals, not just the underclass criminals. And do you think there's an element of a democratic administration controlling the Department of Justice that in the face of what we've experienced from Barr and Trump is bending over backwards to overcompensate and not appear on any level political to the extent that they're not doing their job? Yes, let me be clear. I. I think Merrick Garland is a good, honest, honorable man. I think he was a good prosecutor back in the day, including at my former office, the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. But in the 24 years he was on the bench, he became too much judge and not enough prosecutor. And I don't think he is up to the urgency of the moment. But I don't think it's because he's corrupt or compromised. I think it's precisely, Andy, what you said. They're trying so desperately not to appear political, but declining to bring charges against politicians for that collateral purpose of painting a picture of how fair you are, that in and of itself is a political act and it's improper. That's not how we make our prosecutorial decisions. And so in, the, in light of that, is Jack Smith the ying to Garland's yang? Is he the guy to clean it up and make it happen? I mean, if we look at what he's done in the last seven months, it's incredible how fast he's moved this along. Yeah, we've been waiting for heroes, and I hope we're not fooled a third time. We thought Bob Mueller was going to bring it home. Full disclosure, Bob was my chief of homicide, so I was in his office every day when we worked together, talking tactics and plea offers and indictments. I think very highly of him. I think Bob thought when he delivered that blockbuster Mueller report, particularly volume two, with as many as 10 federal felony obstruction of justice charges, the Republicans in Congress would react 
the, exactly the way they reacted in 1974 when the Nixon tapes were disclosed. They would march on the Oval Office and say, Mr. President, resign or you will be impeached and removed. That was a miscalculation. So Bob Mueller couldn't bring it home. Merrick Garland has not brought it home. Now, I didn't work directly with Jack Smith, but some of the prosecutors in my shop, the homicide section at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, did go over and work for him. Everything I have heard is that he is a true without fear or favor kind of prosecutor. And as you say, he's been going 100 miles an hour, scorched earth, fighting and winning every single battle that these people are throwing up, trying to prevent going into the grand jury and incriminating Donald Trump. And he's only been in place since November. We feel like we've been waiting for justice forever. Smith has only been special counsel since November 18th. He's done a phenomenal job. I have great confidence in him, but show me the indictments. Well, there is a major distinction between Mueller and Smith in the sense that Mueller declared, I'm not a prosecutor and I'm not prosecuting this case. And that's exactly Jack Smith's job. So he is the wizard behind the curtain and he's pulling the strings. So hopefully we're going to see a different outcome. I know you got to run back in a few minutes. You and I both learned something about each other. Just this morning, you learned that my late wife, Adrian Shelley, was murdered. And I learned that you not only founded an organization for homicide victims' families, but you worked very closely with uh, California Congressman Eric Swalwell in drafting the first version of a bill that would protect, that does protect murder victims' families. And that's a bill that Biden signed into law last August. Tell us about that work that you're doing and have done. Yeah. So 22 of my 30 years as a prosecutor, I handled murder cases in Washington, D.C., and I have hundreds of homicide families that will forever live in my heart. What I saw was there, there are so many unsolved murders in this country. There are 4,000 in D.C. There are more than a quarter of a million nationwide, and those families sit by the phone for a call that never comes. We've got a break in your loved one's case. And I just decided, look, I'm a gutter kid from Jersey, but I'm like, maybe I can do something about it. I retired June of 2018 from the department. I sat at my kitchen table and drafted up what ultimately became the Homicide Victims Families Rights Rights Act. Thank goodness I got to know Congressman Eric Swalwell himself, a former prosecutor. He took me in, he introduced me to his legislative director, and we went to work for years. And it ultimately culminated in this federal law being passed, and it gives families whose loved one was taken from them by violent crime, and there is a federal nexus. In other words, it's a possible federal murder. It gives them the opportunity and the legal right to demand a review of their loved one's investigation, and depending on the results of the review, a full reinvestigation of the case by a new team of detectives. Now we're in the process of taking this federal crime victims legislation and pushing it out to the states, which is where all the cold case homicides really are. And Andy, that's precisely what we what was done with the earlier crime victims rights acts. They come on the books federally. They get pushed out to the states often with grant money. So the states have some resources and then the state legislatures pass local state laws that sort of mimic what the federal government has done. And these Crime Victims Rights Acts have been just an enormous benefit to crime victims around the nation. So we wanted to replicate that on the homicide front. It's so important. And I remember 16 years ago when my wife died, 17 years ago, 
those first few days where she was presumed to be a suicide, which five days later we learned that someone actually did murder her. I felt lucky in that period because I, I felt that I had some tools and resources. I was media savvy. I had friends in communications. I knew how to work within the system, but I always thought about all the people who don't have those resources, who just don't know what to do. They find somebody dead or they're loved one gets killed and they're like, what do I do? Who do I talk to? Where do I go? And I'm sorry you went through that. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to sign off because they're now calling me back on air. All right. Thank you, Andy. Great talking with you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's episode 70. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Osprey. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. And if you do like the podcast, please follow and subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Glenn Kirshner. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. <laughs>